Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's February 12th, 2022, in a hotel room in the Thai capital city of Bangkok. A city famed for its temples, nightlife, and sleaze. But in this particular hotel room, three very disparate men are catching a glimpse of products you don't often see amongst the strip clubs and painted women of the Pechaburi Road. The room itself belongs to a man claiming to be a member of a major Burmese rebel group, the Shan State Army or Karen National Union, we don't know for sure. And in two plastic containers, in two wooden boxes, are samples of what he and a second man in the room, a Japanese gangster named Takeshi Ebisawa, claims are uranium and thorium, two radioactive elements associated with nuclear energy, or bombs. The uranium is enriched, Ebisawa says. It's what scientists know by a simple, but somehow ominous nickname, yellow cake. The third man in the room is a broker, or at least he says he is, for an Iranian general who Ebisawa and several Burmese friends believe wants to buy the elements to help his nation build a nuclear weapon. He's been clear about this, making sure on several occasions that Ebisawa knows full well the uranium is for quote W purposes, that's weapons, not peaceful ones. The broker checks the stuff out, it looks legit. He takes a couple pics and says yeah, the Iranian general is going to want in on this. The men shake hands and they say their farewells. Then, the Burmese rebel takes his little wooden boxes and heads to one of his group's safe houses across town. Thing is, he's been followed all the way by Thai cops. The broker is, of course, a DEA agent. And his Iranian general? Pretty one-dimensional character if you ask me, but a fiction nonetheless. The agent has been working Ebisawa, a purported boss of Japan's Yakuza, for three years, brokering all kinds of drugs and weapons deals. Catching him trying to traffic nuclear material to Iran, well, that's the cherry on top of the yellow cake. Within days, Ebisawa and a group of co-conspirators are behind bars, awaiting extradition to the US, the dopes in a sting operation that could have been lifted straight from Hollywood. But how legit is the bust? And who is Ebisawa? The stout, goateed gangster cops have been saying for years is a Yakuza Don, despite that not really being a thing. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Hey, 
Welcome to the podcast about global organised crime, where two journalists with bylines at esteemed publications, including the Barking and Dagenham Post, Pimp Guides and Vice, bring you weekly tales from the black market. Now, you might have read some new stuff about today's show, generated all kinds of headlines last week, and it was too mad not to write about. And actually, we've jointly written a show today, which is a bit different and perhaps exciting, but I promise you, this Yakuza, Yellow Cake, Burmese Rebel, Iranian General, Bangkok Undercover Agents thing is way, way dumber than you think it is. I just want to interject that you should be punished for writing the line, cherry on top of the yellow cake. <laughs> you should be glad that I'm getting the shit puns in right at the top of the show. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to use them up early on. Anyway, we're going to go deep on this thing and some of the underlying issues behind it in just a few moments. First, a request to follow and subscribe on all our socials so we get a few pennies off big tech. And we've got a ton of bonuses coming up, as always, for Patreon members who are Let's face it, way, way better people than those of you who just listen and don't pay us stuff. I actually bought one of those Halo lights to do video interviews with, so you might even see my face on this thing, which is uh, it's pretty terrifying. Yes, our, our YouTube channel was all... They were all in, in, in fluttering. Their hearts were fluttering because Sean <laughs> did a face review. Because I don't even know. I mean, you can just Google Jesus. me. I'm fucking... Too much. Uh, until Vice pulls all the videos down because they're doing that. But uh, yeah, anyway... <laughs> patreon.com slash interworld podcast and you can also subscribe on itunes or even on spotify and get the bonuses right to you there but yes anyway anyway yeah um briefly before the yellow cake i just want to say a quick r.i.p to flacco the central park eurasian owl i guess like star of new york city died last thursday aged just 13 peace up brother but um yeah was he murdered Katrina Einhorn at the New York Times thinks he could have been, and uh, she wrote this, frankly, brilliant lead. Quote, Flacco spent a year defying expectations, an owl born into captivity who quickly learned to hunt and fend for himself in the wilds of New York City. That ended on Friday when he flew into a building near Central Park. What went wrong? Did he hit a window that he failed to perceive as glass, like hundreds of millions of birds across the United States each year? Or was he compromised in some way? That impeded his ability to navigate New York's concrete canyons. Jesus. I mean, first of all, I want everyone to know that Sean <laughs> Sean laughed when he talked about he chuckled when he talked about that bird hitting a window. These were tears. These were tears. You just don't you don't get my emotional cues. But also like the New York the New York Times, man, it's just that is it's uh Anyway, yeah, I mean, they're just asking failure media. Man. What can you? Um, I just want to point out that Barry, another celebrity New York owl. Died after hitting a car in 2021, reportedly had high levels of rat poison in her system. Another theory is lead poisoning or avian flu. I mean, we're going to keep a close eye on this one, guys. Um, yeah, I don't know. No, we're not. No, we're not at all, are we? But the El Chinguito, the narco monkey thing did really well online, so I thought I'd just tee this up. Anyway, that is enough of Flacco and Owls and Chinguito. Anyway, to the main show. Takeshi Ebisawa. I mean, you may have missed it, but this month's indictment, it's actually the continuation of an indictment from April 2022. And that's when Ebisar was first nabbed for guns, drugs and money laundering charges. Back then, US attorney Damian Williams praised the undercover agents involved in the narcotics side of this case, saying, quote, 
The drugs were destined for New York streets, and the weapons shipments were meant for factions in unstable nations. Members of this international crime syndicate can no longer put lives in danger and will face justice for their illicit actions. Yeah, also, new season of Tokyo Vice by a friend of the pod, Jake Adelstein, is, uh, it's great, so you should really be watching it. Oh, man. I watched, like, the first episode of that on a flight recently, and then the only other episode they had was, like, episode eight. Why do airlines do that? What's the point? <laughs> so dumb. Uh, anyway, yeah, definitely should watch that. The indictment from this year anonymizes Ebisawa's three co-defendants. But weirdly, you'd only need to go back to the April 22 filings to find out their names, which are Thai and about 28 syllables long, so I'm not going to say them here because, uh, as we well know, you guys don't like names. But anyway, all three are Thai nationals. One has dual US nationality. Before that, I can't find any record of Ebisawa whatsoever, which could be because he's a criminal mastermind Yakuza boss guy. Although, as we're about to find out, that is pretty unlikely given he can barely rub two brain cells together and because there's really no such thing as the quote yakuza as a unified thing anyway they're all disparate groups like the yamaguchi gumi the sumiyoshi kai yeah you know but i feel like that's kind of always the case with these groups right like we say mafia boss or kimura boss or even like you know leader of the bloods gang right when there's like 15 different versions of bloods i don't even probably even more same thing with various mafias so i, I mean that's not the kind of thing that i think right away like makes me suspicious you know it's just something that they do for the general public who isn't aware of the intricacies of these groups and how divided they are well that's what makes me wonder about it because why does japanese gangster not work why do they need to throw this yakuza thing in it's just because they want headlines and whatever yeah it's the kind of thing that gets attention and like you know he could he's could be a boss of a yakuza group but it's the same thing like when they indict a guy like a mafia boss they don't say like well, maybe with the mafia in New York, but they don't say like the boss of the this family or that family for the most. They start off saying mafia boss and you see the same thing with the bloods or, you know, other gangs, other groups that we just know. Like there's no such thing as the actual Russian mafia, right? There's just yeah. organized crime groups. So it's kind of like I think it's just something that that law enforcement does initially to, like you said, get headlines, but also because they don't have to they don't want to go into specifics right away because it won't make any if you said he's the boss of the yamaguchi got like no one's gonna know what that means right <laughs> okay well that one's debunked by uh, danny gold so in fact <laughs> anyway the um the doj indictment right so i read all i think 87 pages of it so you guys don't have to uh calls ebisawa quote leader of the yakuza organized crime syndicate a highly organized transnational japanese criminal network that operates around the world and it also says he's been doing narcotics and weapons trafficking, and his network extends throughout Asia, Europe, and the US. So he's pretty big time, according to that. I mean, Ebisawa's lawyer told the New York Times that he wouldn't comment on the specific charges in this case, but adds that, quote, when this case is tried, it will be clear that Mr. Ebisawa is not a leader of any sophisticated criminal syndicate, Yakuza, or otherwise. Well... If that's the only thing he's uh, fighting the case on, then uh, I think, oh, Takeshi's a little bit screwed. But uh, yeah, maybe that's true. But fine, let's not get too lost in semantics because, again, I don't think you guys like names, but this strange tale actually begins back in early 2020 in a, quote, series of telephonic and electronic communications. <laughs> uh -huh. And by the way, the feds are saying this is encrypted, in quotes, to make it seem more cloak and dagger. It's actually WhatsApp. This bozo is doing a nuclear deal on WhatsApp. I think we need the curb theme tune after like half of these bits of information. 
Yeah, don't uh, don't WhatsApp your crimes, but also like a lot of people do, and evil even like things like Signal get you know they get taken, they get leaked as well. So uh, yeah. you know, just don't discuss them in electronic conversations. I think the best thing people were doing right was back in the day, over like video games or oh, a yeah. draft folder of uh of emails. I think that was uh that was ingenious until they caught on. I think a lot of uh, syndicates now use the code beneath like shopping websites to hide stuff. So I read that loads of stuff, if you go on like Ikea somewhere, then if you go under the thing for like, I don't know, they call them like spunk, don't they, or whatever, the uh, chest of drawers, you can find code that's actually people dealing drugs and stuff under that, which is pretty, pretty ingenious. It's not WhatsApp is what I'm saying. Anyway, Ebisawa tells an undercover DEA agent named in the indictment as UC1 and a DEA confidential source called CS1 that he has access to a large quantity of nuclear materials that he wants to sell. I mean, he's screwed from the beginning, isn't he? So here's the scene setting. We've got one alleged gangster and two other guys, both of whom are government assets. And on February 8th that year, Ebisawa reaches out to our CS1, that's the informant, if he has a buyer for, quote, uranium that he claims is, quote, dangerous and not good for your health. So, not the health serum form of uranium, just to be clear. Then <laughs> Ebisawa sends a bunch of photos of a dark, rocky material next to a Geiger counter. That's a handheld, phaser-looking thing that measures radioactivity. I mean, this is all starting to sound like some elaborate Nigerian scam right now. Yeah, but it's actually, it's interesting because I assumed it was going to be a situation from what you were saying about it not being, um, smelling fishy, that it was going to be a situation where the undercover agents asked him to procure this firm not the kind of thing where he was straight up offering it out of the blue you know so here's here's what i think because there are some whispers in the pay like in, in the stuff that i've read about this going on for a year beforehand so i don't know who reached out to whom to begin with there was something in the indictment about this being activity that had been going on since 2019 but then they don't actually start the story until 2020 which makes me a little bit suspect that they actually might have reached out to him, but I don't know. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll find out in due course. Anyway, as luck would have it, CS1, that's the informant, does have a buyer for uranium. That's lucky, isn't it? Guess who? Yes, the undercover DEA guy, UC1. In June and August that year, so 2020, Ebisawa sends a load more photos of this brown stuff to the agent, alongside pages of what he claims are lab analyses showing elements of uranium and thorium. And thorium is an element that's long been claimed to be used in nuclear devices, but as far as I can tell, it actually isn't. It's like a debunked thing. Anyway, at this point, it starts getting really Mel Brooks because CS1, the DAA agent, says he or she has got just the guy who'd be interested in buying nuclear material like this, an Iranian general, no less. On August 31st, 2020, Ebisawa asked the agent if Iran might, quote, buy directly from us. Yeah, no problem, the agent says. Let me just intro you guys via email, as you do with Iranian generals. But the general, the agent says in the subsequent message, is, quote, the decision maker on the stuff you have available for sale, and he is very interested. And then a week later, he sends Ebisawa another message. I mean, see if this one wouldn't have pricked up your ears a bit. Quote, how enriched is it? Above 5%? They don't need it for energy. Iranian government need it for nuclear weapons. I mean, come on, man. Ebisawa, quote, I think and I hope so. <laughs> I mean, you still think this guy's a criminal genius? Uh, nah, me neither. This goes on and on. 
Ibisawa claims he's got almost $7 million of the stuff. And the agent and the Iranian general being like, hell yeah, man, just give us all you got. We're building a big fat nuke to destroy the evil West. In mid-September, Ebisar was on a call and he's like, just so you guys know, I don't have a license to deal with these materials. He also says he can supply plutonium that's even better than uranium for Iran, which is clearly BS. The agent doesn't mind this one bit. Quote, this is going to be a very quiet and secret illegal transaction, they say. Yes, Ebisawa shoots back. So that is why we need to talk fast about that. This guy must have been just like punching the air every time Ebisawa sent him a message. You may have guessed already, but yeah. The Iranian general is course of another confidential source. So now Ebisawa is one of four participants in all of this, and the other three are all plants. I mean, you might be having sympathies for our man Takeshi at this point. He's no mega spy. He's doing deals for uranium on WhatsApp and emails. So come on, man. But he's getting stitched up pretty hard when all it seems he's trying to do is scam some black marketeer in the Iranian government, which, you know, isn't that bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends, right? Is he a grifter or is he seriously trying to procure it? Because I thought... At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, you know, if he straight up came out with the offer, a different, different story. But if he's a grifter, then you got to respect that sort of hustle and screwing over those sort of people. So I guess, I guess we'll find out, won't we? We'll find out incredibly shortly. Uh, so now it's May 2021. <laughs> and yeah, things are going to change a little. Remember the Fed said Ebisawa is a weapons dealer? Well, on May 9th that year, he sends a list of stuff he wants the DEA agent to get for his clients. Again, this entire list is just casually sent on WhatsApp. I mean, this guy does less secure deals than your neighborhood weed dealer. Ebisawa wants, and here we go, 5,000 AK-47s with 25,000 clips and a million rounds. That's your standard fare, I guess. 5,000 M16s, same ammo and clips. 20 M20s. So these are fat, recoilless, anti-tank machine guns used extensively in that famously modern war, Korea. <laughs> uh, Ebisawa wants 35,000 tracers, 35,000 regular rounds for these. I mean, this is not stuff you can get down the local gun show, although I'm not American, to be fair. Maybe you can. Can or already have, listener? Well, I mean, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, as they say in New Zealand with guns. Uh, next up, some mortars, because uh, who doesn't need mortars? Episode wants 80 units of varying calibers, of course. He wants 20 sniper rifles, doesn't specify which, just sniper rifles, 10 with regular scopes, 10 with night vision scopes, Thousand rounds for those bad boys, uh, whichever models they are. And then he wants 50 RPGs, 500 rockets, because why not? And 50, quote, portable SAMs, which are, I think, manpads similar to javelins, if you heard about them from the war in Ukraine. Uh, Ebisar wants, quote, 
Reloadable? If yes, then additional rockets. A hundred pieces. Yeah, he might not be that good a guy. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> no, I think this is sort of harming his defense somewhat. Funnily enough, Ebisawa is careful enough to codename weapons as bamboo uh, before then just writing them all down on WhatsApp. Two of the tires, that's his code uh, conspirators, believe the weapons have been filtered from a US base in Afghanistan. So they may be among the millions of pieces of weaponry left behind by the Americans when they pulled out in May 2021. Who knows? But who is Ebisawa's buyer for this stuff? Okay, so he wants the stuff for his buyers. He wants to swap that basically for the nuclear material. Well, he says it's a quote, buyer's boss named as CC, co-conspirator one in the file, who is the leader of an ethnic insurgent group in Burma. Then, Ebisawa introduces the agent to two other brokers, also unnamed in the indictment, but this is probably the most believable stuff here because, and I don't know if you guys have picked up from the last three years of doing this show, Burma is an absolute mess and it has gotten worse lately. Yeah, things are things are not great there. I'll have a little bit of a rundown of that. But um, if you want more, definitely listen to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Uh, our friend Joa runs that, yeah. and he's uh, he's great. So, yeah, let's talk about Burma. First of all, the reason I call it Burma and not Myanmar is because the military junta actually changed the name to Myanmar. And once I was in Thailand like 15 years ago, and I was hanging out with some Burmese guys, they'd fled the country, and they were like, "Don't call it Myanmar, call it Burma." But uh. I don't even know if it was called a junta back then, right? It may have been just your standard military dictatorship. Wait, is there a difference between a military dictatorship and a junta or junta? I don't know. Is it also pronounced junta? I think so. Is I think, it Spanish? I don't know. I think junta is more, more of a group. But uh, yeah, because you know, the, the country had that weird period where it looked like they were liberalizing and reforming a bit. And then, of course, that ended in, in 2021 when the junta kind of regained re-grab the power although most people will tell you that they really never gave it up in the first place but yeah we've done a few episodes on burma and what goes on there going way back i think to one of my first episodes on the rohingya and the human trafficking mm. gangs that prey on them i've done a documentary on that to sean's stories of billion dollar meth labs to our recent episode with patrick Wynn about the wah and opium heroin yaba smuggling and without rehashing That's everything great. like one thing you should take away from this is that burma is a hub for smuggling and trafficking people, copious amounts of drugs and weapons, lots and lots of weapons. Part of this has to do with the fact that since its independence and then more so since it became that military dictatorship in 1962, it's been home to something like, what I don't know, dozens of ethnic militias, maybe only a dozen prominent ones that have been fighting against the government for decades, like decades long wars. But of recent, you know, we're talking the last two to three years or so, the country has faced an unprecedented civil war after that military coup, though most people say, like I said, the military was always really in charge despite the supposed loosening of their power in the last decade as you know, more and more people in the main ethnic group, the Bamar people, they've risen up and are fighting in the more central cities, whereas the ethnic militias, it was usually fighting in the borderlands. The ethnic militias too, um, they typically haven't been so friendly with each other, but they're more united than ever at taking down the government's. And they've been making massive gains like never before. And the government is, is actually seriously under threat. And things have gotten just uh, just brutal. I mean, the Burmese government has always committed lots of massacres and executions and all that. And they've always been particularly brutal and known for like, you know, just demolishing and killing entire villages. 
And the current low estimates put the number of dead at around 50,000. And of course, with all these militias, you've got tons of weapons floating around and the smuggling networks are just are crazy. Not to mention the two biggest suppliers of weapons to the military junta are who else? China and Russia. So yeah, lots of lots of weapons, lots of lawlessness and 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 deals with um, you know, shady shady countries, shady organizations and a complete breakdown of the state along with a government willing to do anything to stay in power. Sounds nice. Uh, I, I just thought of another one. What's a cadre? What's a posse? Are these the same? I, I think cadre. I, I think I cadres and junta have similarities, but uh, I have not checked a, a dictionary definition. <laughs> okay, we'll do that next time. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, on top of even all this craziness, right? You've got these criminal groups using all of the chaos to build. These illegal betting syndicates out of casinos buried in the jungle, scam compounds. We've done a couple of episodes on that. I'm actually banging down the doors of a couple of editors to send me out there soon, so I really want to do that. I mean, I don't know if this is going out before or after my latest bonus interview. I think probably before, but I spoke with a guy last week who helps people escape slavery in Southeast Asia, and he was telling me that now Burma is the biggest place for escapees to come from. But just a few years ago, he didn't really deal with the country at all. I mean... Edwin Starr really didn't think about the gangsters when he was writing that tune, did he? So anyway, Burma, real hot mess. And the Yakuza? Well, there's no strangers to illicit weapons deals either. I mean, if you remember the show that we did, oh, God knows how long, like three years ago about the history of them, and now they've come to be pretty toothless overall. They were all over Hawaii in the mid-1980s when Japan and the US were booming, and so were the houses of major crime family bosses in the land of the rising sun, lots of people getting killed. In one bonkers episode in 1985, members of the Yamaguchi Gumi, that's the biggest Yakuza group, buys a stack of weapons from what turns out to be FBI agents in Hawaii, including three rocket launchers paid for with 52 pounds of meth and 12 pounds of heroin worth $56 million, which is a lot nowadays. I mean, it's literally a smoking gun case, right? No. The defense argues that the Japanese word hai doesn't just mean yes, but quote, I understand what you're saying. And the jury lets them off. Massive, massive hat tip to that lawyer. Incredible work. Yeah. Uh, you talk about that, I think, in the Yakuza episodes, right? From like the first few months of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember remember back then when we didn't think we'd make tons and tons of money from this? And, <laughs> and look where, look at them now. Uh, anyway, Ebisawa, our errant alleged Yakuza boss, has long said hi on his own dodgy deals, right? He's chatting to informants and a DEA agent and his rough plan is to sell a bunch of nuclear material to an Iranian general, who of course is not real, to finance a weapons deal to sell to a group of ethnic Burmese insurgents. I mean, there's a meth craze going on in Japan. The Yakuza run legit businesses. Is this really the best way to make a buck over there? Yeah, I mean, we've tried to educate our listeners. First, it was don't Instagram your crimes. Do get involved in real estate development. You know, buy a laundromat or a car wash instead of a, <laughs> a, a, a giant chain. But... If you are overseas, it is really important. Do not get involved in anything that is bringing weapons or drugs into the U.S. or supplying weapons or drugs to enemies of the U.S. It's just, it's going to get you on lists you don't want to be on. There are so many other countries with incompetent law enforcement agencies who don't have global footprints. Like, there's money to be made there. Focus, focus on that. Yeah, I mean, just do pachinko. I mean, I just read <laughs> the people who eat darkness and like, everyone's into pachinko, right? Just, just... Build an arcade. Yeah, big money. Big money in Pachinko. Oh, God. Anyway. 
The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020 and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This new age channel told us so Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker. And then what about this Oprah endorsed best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G. As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshiping stuff it gets very gory in the basement and it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the capital insurrection but it didn't stop there every week on conspirituality podcast we track the overlaps between new age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults overwhelmed by investing if you're anything like us the hardest part is getting started that's why we created the investing for beginners podcast our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. What's up, everyone? I want to talk to you guys today about my friends at Barber Surgeons Guild. They're an incredible barbershop and hair restoration center in Los Angeles and New York. I actually get my hair cut at the one in New York. So go see my man, Justin, if you want a great cut. But... It's actually so much more than that. These are the guys helping celebrities, you know, athletes, actors in their 30s and their 40s, 50s, 60s all have great hair. They are the miracle workers. You know, I myself, I was born in the 80s, so I'm definitely trying to take good care of my hair. And besides getting my hair cut there, I've actually seen them for PRP maintenance, which has been like a huge help. My hair looks great. But they do so much more than that. They've got all sorts of cutting edge technology. You know, they've got programs. They've got something for everyone. They, they also do robotic hair transplants, which is like the newest thing in hair transplant technology. Definitely look them up. It's barbersurgeonsguild.com. You can get a free consultation and mention Underworld and you'll actually get a free gift as well. That's barbersurgeonsguild.com. B-A-R-B-E-R-S-U-R-G-E-O-N-S. G-U-I-L-D dot com. They're going to help you look great. On June 30, 2021, in a, i got to stress this, a group WhatsApp chat with the Burmese guys and the agents. So he's just bringing them all in now, guys. Hey, meet my friends. I mean, what the F? He sends a photo of a handwritten note claiming he's had stuff with, quote, U308, 80% purity. And that is referring to a substance called triuranium octoside. Thanks, guys. I've got to be in GCSE science, which is more commonly known as yellow cake. This is a powder you get around halfway through the process from uranium mining to enrichment for nuclear power and, yes, sometimes bombs. 
The agent is, of course, down for this and sweetens the fantasy by telling Ebisawa the Iranian general, the fake one, of course, wants to, quote, send either his nuclear physicist or one of the engineers to see and inspect the powder, which, I don't know, I'd be pulling out the trust me bro at this point, but Ebisawa responds, thanks, my friend, that's THX, thanks. This is really getting a bit slapstick. Ebisawa sends a photo of himself then holding a Geiger counter to a bunch of yellow barrels. He's literally getting himself over a barrel, saying one of the Burmese rebels has been mining this stuff in his region. Now, that doesn't sound all that true either. According to the NGO Nuclear Threat Initiative, which is really cool, quote, Myanmar's government has also undertaken some uranium exploration, though the extent and specifics of these activities are unknown. According to the Myanmar Ministry of Energy, there are five areas for potential uranium mining. Myanmar has no confirmed mining or milling facilities, despite allegations by dissident groups of the existence of sites near Mandalay, which is right in the middle of the country. And uh, yeah, it gets funnier. Quote, experts at the Institute for Science and International Security, which is ISIS, assert based on independent satellite and photographic imagery analysis. Wow, easy for me to say that the facility in question is most likely a cement plant. So this is more evidence that Evisawa and his rebel mates are perhaps pulling a fast one. I mean, we don't know for sure, right? But of course, the agent doesn't actually need to get his hands on this stuff. So when Ebisawa then goes to his Burmese guys and one of them says he has 100 kilos of enriched uranium, quote, ready to go, well, these guys are just digging their own graves. Yeah, so let's talk smuggling nukes and nuke material. Remember the days of like uh, suitcase nukes and all that? <laughs> I feel like usually this is the thing associated with former Soviet Union stuff, you know, Pakistan, Iran. But starting in like 1991, there was a huge panic with, I think, good reason about rogue countries organized crime and terrorists getting their hands on on material from the former Soviet Union. It was also the plot line for, I think, what, 60% of action movies from the year <laughs> 1993 to 2014. The Soviet Union had 30,000 nuclear weapons at 600 tons of material. And after it fell, you know, countries like Moldova, they didn't exactly have strict security measures in, uh, in place. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, that was, of course, before now, right? where Moldova has excellent security and absolutely no organized crime of any kind. I just want to stress that. Anyway, carry on. Sean, how dare you? In recent years, uh, here's a quote from an Atomic Archive website. A total of 146 incidents of illegal or unauthorized activities involving nuclear and other radioactive material were reported in 2022. The International Atomic Energy Agency said today, in an annual fact sheet summarizing data, from the IAEA Incident and Trafficking Database. The numbers, which include some incidents connected to illicit trafficking or malicious use, remained at around the same level as in recent years, which, you know, neat. <laughs> Look, I don't, I don't know too much about this sort of stuff in this episode. It's very last minute. I know there's people who do, but it always kind of struck me as, as you know, kind of boring nerd shit, not going to lie. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there was a super early Vice doc like before Vice News, one of their first video pieces where they sold like, you know, they sold DVDs of them about them attempting to buy sm smuggled material in Bulgaria or something like that. But with all Vice stuff made back then, I don't know. I, I, fa I think it's fair to assume it was heavily exaggerated. But nukes, people do want them. Bad people want them. There is, of course, the infamous AQ Khan smuggling network. He's the father of Pakistan's nuclear weapons program who was involved in trying to sell material and tech to fund countries like North Korea, Libya, and others. 
Ah, uh, yeah, he was the Islamic bomb guy, right? I mean, he, when he was released from house arrest in Pakistan, the Obama White House issued a warning that he was still, quote, a serious proliferation risk. I mean, that is a pretty badass name to get from the U.S. state. Yeah, I've always thought it was great that a country that's always teetering on the edge of falling apart, that's a haven for extremists, both in and outside of the government, has a whole bunch of nukes. But, you know, what can you do? Here's another quote from, uh, from Smithsonian Magazine that's, uh, you know, not that reassuring. Between 2000 and 2019, the National Nuclear Security Administration reported the disposal and reception of almost 16,000 pounds of the material and plutonium, enough, according to NNSA Administrator Lisa Gordon Haggerty, for more than 300 nuclear weapons. So while I was looking yeah, into this, <laughs> yeah, not, not reassuring, but while I was looking into this, there were kind of lots of mixed messages. Take the story of Oleg Kinsagov. This is February 2006. He leaves southern Russia with 80 grams of enriched uranium and is planning on selling it for a million bucks to what's said to be a serious Muslim group in Georgia, the country. The buyer was happy with it. He's going to go get him a lot more, except when he gets to Georgia to make the deal, the serious Muslim organization ends up being the Georgian governments, the FBI and the U.S. Department of Energy. And he gets arrested and he gets eight years in prison, which seems, you know, kind of light, but. Here's the thing, and this is from American Public Media. I think this came out in 2017 or 2018. Quote, the story of Oleg Kinsagov encapsulates the threat from smugglers carrying nuclear material across the porous borders of the former Soviet Union. This type of nuclear smuggling is a staple of Hollywood films and is often cited as the most dangerous source of nuclear proliferation. But the Kinsagov's case illustrates something else, that nearly all reported smuggling cases of fissile, fissile? Material involved nuclear. Yeah, I can't pronounce anything. Material involved low-level figures and only minute amounts of radioactive material. Nowhere close to enough fuel to make a bomb. So yeah, kind of different from what we heard above from from those experts. And uh, I don't really know if we should put faith in American public media too. But look, I don't, I don't know. But I do think it's good that the authorities are constantly on the lookout for this sort of thing, and they should be. But that's important to keep in mind that maybe, you know, it isn't as dire as we think it is. At the same time, this was clearly a test case for Oleg. So so who knows? You know, he's probably going to sell or he said he was going to sell. He's supposed to sell a little bit and then get a lot more. But yeah, Sean, it uh, it seems like from hearing from you this week, this case is kind of fishing in that way. Yeah. I mean, just in case anyone is confused, I just want to reiterate that I'm not a nuclear physicist, <laughs> but... Maybe. I mean, there's tons of informants in this, like the almost overcrowding the actual criminals. I mean, a low-level dealer seems like it, although maybe the weapons stuff isn't that small time. And a uh, small amount of material. Yeah, I doubt you're going to make a nuclear bomb out of like a, a snuff case full of brown stuff. But uh, I could be wrong. I don't know. Anyway, let's continue with our boy Ebisawa. Now, it is February 4th, 2022. The three Burmese rebel co-conspirators meet in Thailand, where they get on a group video call to the undercover DEA agent, where they discuss all kinds of stuff about quantities of various nuclear materials. Then a couple weeks later, Ebisawa meets with the agent and the informant in Phuket, Thailand. Nice gig if you can get it. Where they seal the deal for the guns, some drugs because this is Southeast Asia, so why not? And of course, the yellow cake. Then there's another meeting of everyone in Bangkok, the Thai capital. Weapons, rebels, criminal traffickers, Bangkok. Does that ring a bell? Well, if you listen to our show on Victor Boot, the so-called Merchant of Death, and that's another one, maybe way back in October, September or something, 2020, 
good old days, it's how the feds got him too, as well as arms trafficker Monsalau Kassar before him. In Boots' case, it's DEA agents posing as members of the FARC, Colombia's leftist rebels, making sure they get him discussing RPGs that would be used to shoot down American helicopters. That's the key, right? Getting the guy to admit something that we use to kill US service members. And Bangkok? Well, because it's a close ally and they'll extradite folks. Yeah, I don't even know if it's just US service members, right? It's any US citizens, but... US citizens, yeah. yeah. It kind of sucks that Bangkok gets a rep for this kind of thing and, you know, sleaziness too, because it actually is just like a wonderful city. Just like great people, oh, yeah. cheap, amazing food, high quality of life, a lot of exciting you know, companies starting up, young people. I think it's becoming like a, a tech hub too, that in Chiang Mai. So um, Bangkok's great. Like don't, uh, don't associate it with just, you know, sleaziness or weapons traffickers. <laughs> I, I never thought about the possibility of us getting ads for like, you know, country tourism stuff. But uh, yeah, Bangkok, not all brothels and drugs is, is a pretty good tagline. Although I guess for a lot of our listeners, uh, maybe maybe that's not what they're there for. Anyway, that's not necessarily sus in itself, right? All this stuff in Bangkok. I mean, it's probably a good thing that countries are working together to prosecute dangerous people, isn't it? But like, this case has so many informants and as many agents as it does so-called bad guys. And there have been a ton of cases in the past where undercover agents have either pressed people in doing crimes or just completely instigated them themselves. Yeah, it uh that's not the case here though, right? He he's the one who instigated this. Yeah, the weapons stuff. That's why this is so weird this case. I mean, it, there's all stuff going to tumble out in court and I think they're going to push us through pretty quick cuz doesn't have a chance in hell. So we'll find out more soon. But uh yeah, I mean, Patreons might remember a really interesting interview I did with reporter Trevor Aronson about his podcast Alphabet Boys a while back. It's maybe even last year which digs into sting operations just like this one. Um, that might be on YouTube. I think a lot of our videos are. Go check it out. There's there's tons of stuff there. Back to Episawa. It's Feb 12th now, and the hotel room meeting I described at the top of the show. After it, Thai cops follow the Burmese rebel back to his Bangkok safe house, and a couple months later, authorities raid it, grab the samples, and hand them over to the feds. A lab then determines that it is, in fact, uranium and thorium. Quote, in particular... The laboratory determined that the isotope composition of the plutonium found in the nuclear samples is weapons grade, meaning that the plutonium, if produced in sufficient quantities, would be suitable for use in a nuclear weapon. Damn, so he really done did it, huh? I mean, he's got stuff. He's got stuff. He's got a tiny bit of stuff, but he's got stuff. What Takeshi Ebisawa is actually on the hook for? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a lot now, right? First off, smuggling nuclear material. That's a pretty big one. I don't think many people get done for that each year. Count two is brokering the sale of nuclear material. Okay, yep, that makes sense. And count three claims that from June 2019, see, that's the key. That was what I was forgetting at the top of the show. Until April 22, when he was busted, Ebisawa and a 60-year-old co-defendant named Sompop Sengateri, who I'm guessing is Thai, uh, met, trafficked meth and heroin. So that's the key, right? I was forgetting about that. So why would they say June 2019 and then start the story the next year? It's like, I don't know. That's that's just a tiny bit fishy to me. I could only find a Twitter account for Singer Siri with no post at all and a profile photo of him shaking hands with Evander Holyfield. Who like, yeah, I mean, he attacked his wife and lost a, like a third of a billion dollars on shitty business deals. But I don't think he's into drug trafficking. Ebisawa and Singer Siri are also on the hook for weapon smuggling, of course, 
while Ebisara alone is getting done for a bunch more weapons, drugs, and money laundering offences. I mean, we're not saying he's not a bad guy. <laughs> it's like, it's just the nuclear stuff is a bit weird. Of the eight counts, five carry a maximum life sentence, and only half of a single percentage point of defendants in federal criminal cases get acquitted. So I reckon Altakeshi is up a creek without a paddle on this one. So anyway, there's your case, guys. What do you reckon? Rock solid or stinks like week's old sushi? Don't Instagram your crimes. Rest in peace, Flacco. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Patreon.com slash Podcast. Do it up.